Uh, and kids, peace be with you as well. Hang in there with us this morning. Bless your parents. Um, and if you don't, it's okay. We, uh, we learn from our mistakes. So um, we're going to be in uh, Genesis 15. So if you've got your Bible this morning, turn there. Um, 15 and 16. And so we're going to start off looking at um, Genesis 15, verse 1 through 6, and then I'll jump to chapter 16, uh, 1 through 6. As Pastor Brandon said, um, we're going to be looking at some stories of doubt. I'll get into that here in a minute. Um, but I just want to read it. It's kind of out of context. Hopefully I can give you a little bit of help in case you're not really familiar with this section of the Bible. That's okay. Um, I'll try to fill in some of the gaps afterwards. Um, if, if you're able for the, to stand for the reading of God's Word, do so now. If not, that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, we, we just try to do that here as a symbol of respect. We stand under the authority of God's Word. Um, so Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and then we'll jump down to 16. Here's what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Quote, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar, Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This, this man shall not be your heir. Your, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then we get this big line, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now we move to 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you're not familiar with that story, that's one heck of a way to stop in the middle of it, right? You might be like, what happens next? Keep reading. It's wonderful. Um, it's quite often, as a pastor, both inside this church and outside this church, I, I, get, all, I, I get asked by people um, to speak on more cultural topics, particularly the ones that are controversial. And at times... I, I, to be honest, I, at times I've even been politely, uh, kindly critiqued for not speaking more directly into cultural issues here at the Oaks. Um, in full disclosure, my thought process isn't a lack of desire to speak on cultural 
hot, controversial issues. It's not, it's not my, I, I have a desire. I actually do really strongly believe that I think the church and the pastors in the church have a place. Uh, they have the freedom, and I think there's, there's goodness in pastors forming, helping form the perspective of the people within at least their sphere of influence on how to respond biblically um, to things that are happening around us in the culture around us, um, helping form a, a healthy, orthodox, Jesus-centered kind of perspective. Uh, the truth is, uh, for me personally, in a world of technology and like rapid-fire access to news, uh, it, it, the speed of which this stuff comes, I just don't think the brain is built to contain this amount of information or process it. And it's just hard for me personally, I'll be honest, to keep up uh, with everything coming in. It's like, which controversies do I spend time on and which ones do I address each week? It's like each week is kind of like I wake up Monday morning and it's like, oh boy, you know? Uh, there's something new or it's gone deeper or, or it's gone more vitriolic, whatever it is. And in addition to that, and, and maybe more importantly, it, it would be helpful for you if you call this church home particularly, it would help, be helpful for you to know that, that I'm, I'm the kind of, of a pastor, I'm kind of a man that likes to take ample time to process. I, I like to take a lot of time to watch and, and to listen. And, and then, of course, I like to take ample time to explore how the Bible uh, really guides me in my thinking before I start to speak. Because I don't want to speak to you uh, particularly in this context, I just don't want to speak to you out of a set of emotions or a set of uh, not fully baked ideas. You know, I, I, really wanna, I really wanna spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, listening to the Spirit, watching and listening to people. I mean, just self-admittedly, I'm more of a Bible teacher than I am a cultural critic. One topic, though, that's been on my mind and on the table for study for quite a long time, for me personally, is this issue of spiritual doubt and deconstruction uh, that you've probably heard about, uh, which essentially deconstruction, um, it's kind of a newer idea. I mean, honestly, originally philosophically in literary terms, it was introduced by Derrida in the 60s, but now it's kind of taken this form of like how we, how we think of faith. and Essentially, it just means the process of dismantling previously held beliefs. It's probably not a mystery to most of you, if you've paid attention, um, that for quite a few years now, there's been a growing conversation, at least within the church, around the concern of how many people are leaving the church. And particularly with the millennial group and younger, it's, it's really bad. It's gone up from, like I think, 22% to 34% that are leaving the church or the faith altogether within that generational group. Um, you know, and I think what we noticed in the pandemic, and I've spoke about this before, I think the pandemic in many ways revealed and accelerated things. That's just what it did. So whatever place someone was heading in, now they, the pandemic just made them go there faster. It threw the accelerator down, and it tore the lid off, right? So, like, it, there were things going on in this, underneath the hood in your life and my life and our lives as a community and our neighborhoods. There were things going on, and the pandemic was just shined a spotlight on it in many ways. And so we're all reckoning with that truth, and we're all reckon, reckoning with what, what happened to my, you know, how many of us knew friends or family members, and it was like, we may have sensed something was off, and then the pandemic happened, and then it was like, who are they? You know, and we've just had to go through a lot, culturally speaking, and some of that has played out in the church, 
and with faith. What I've noticed, which is the case usually for many issues, two tribes have begun to form around this topic of doubt and deconstruction. Um, as one scholar I read put it, there seems to be a rising faction where one side fearfully demonizes doubt and deconstruction, and the other side seems to be um, with a kind of intellectual arrogance demanding it. Uh, so, so what I would say is, is you've got one cultural group, maybe, you, maybe this could be a little unfair, but let's just say you've got a conservative group that hates, hates new ideas. And you've got one group that's more of a, you know, coming from a more progressive, liberal side of, uh, of Christianity that seems to hate old ones. There just seems to be no space uh, in between. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of zealotry that's unhelpful, in my opinion. You know, both of those approaches are lacking, and they're downright destructive to actually what people need right now. Now, although the term deconstruction might be new uh, to us, uh, the struggle of doubt, though, which is why we framed the series under that word, this, the issue and the struggle of doubt in God and in his word is not new. It's very old. In some ways, you could say it, it, it goes back as far as we have records of humanity. Actually, if you look, it shows up on the first few pages of your Bible, right? You go to Genesis 3, and it's like, what's happening here? And what's happening is a conversation and a twisting of words and doubt, right? You have the serpent, Satan, approaching Eve, and what is his question? Is that really what God said? Let's revise this. We, I mean, we hadn't even got through a couple pages of God's word, and it's already being revised. It's already being re-looked at, reworked. I mean, all you have in the garden is the serpent saying, let's, let's talk about theology and let's revise it. And everything unravels from there, right? Once you start twisting the words, there's, there, you know, there's some drifting and then bad decision-making. And every, like you said, you know, like I said, from, from Genesis chapter 3 on, it, it all unravels there. So I, so I just, I bring that up to say, you could say that doubt is baked into your DNA. It's baked in. And so today, if, and for the next four weeks, we're going to look at stories that speak into people who have wrestled with this before. Look no further than our great father Abraham, right? First known as Abram. He will later be renamed. For context, in case you're not familiar with him, if you go back to chapter 12, God calls Abram, this guy Abram and his wife Sarah, out from this place called Haran. He's 75 years old. 75 years old, he sends him out into the great unknown. Um, he tells him that he's going to make him great. He's going to make him a great nation, make him into a great nation, bless him and make his name great. And, and quote, this is the line, and in and through him he will bless all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12.3. That's a huge line. It's an allusion to Jesus. Right? It's like it, it, it will be fulfilled. He's pointing out right there, the Bible's pointing out right now that through him and his seed he will become the nation of Israel, and Israel will produce the Messiah, which is Jesus, and Jesus will bless all of the families of the earth. That's why Paul picks up on that statement in Romans 4 and starts to unpack it in more detail. Chapter 15, we read it. After traveling a bit through the land of Canaan and Egypt, he's got a few travels here. Um, he, he, he has a vision where God visits him, and God says, Fear not, I'm your shield. Your reward's going to be great. Nabram expresses confusion, right? Like, I don't understand. You keep talking about all this. this there's going to be a nation coming from, like, I'm, I'm childless, man. Right? You give me no offspring. And, and God assures him, don't you worry. You're going to have a son. He goes as far as to say, go outside. Look at the stars. Number them. 
This is a day when there's no light pollution. So imagine that. Go out there and number them. This, that, that's how your offspring will be. And it says that Abram believed, believed the Lord with no evidence, believed him, and it counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 16. That's a pretty concrete promise that God gives to him. And yet, chapter 16. (laughs) That's one chapter. What happened? How do you get from 15 to 16? How do you you get to, I I believe, to this uh, strange, perverted scene? In chapter 16. In a word, it's time. Or in another word, it's reality. It's waiting. Waiting without an answer. Waiting without change. Waiting does things, doesn't it? Any of you had go out to a restaurant this week and have a bad experience with a server and you, were, you became someone that you deeply regret? Right? Or you became that person that you're like, oh, I wish he would stay hidden, locked away. Because you don't like waiting, and waiting does things to us. Lack of control does things to us. Do you remember the pandemic? Not seeing how it all fits together does things to us. And sometimes that gets us doubting. Abram and Sarah had to wait. That waiting led to doubting. That doubt led to revision. That revision led to drifting, and that drifting led to a lot of damage. And we read this, uh, starting in verse 1 of 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, I'm just going to read it again, had borne him no children, and she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And, and, and so she brings me to Abram. Now, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarah, Abram's wife, took her, the, the Hagar, the Egyptian, for her servant and gave her to Abram and her husband as a wife. Now, um, this unsurprisingly goes very badly. Um, so even though these are, this is an ancient time and ancient people, they're people. Uh, if you can imagine how this would go in your home, um, this goes very badly for them. There's a lot of jealousy and strife. Um, they, they do achieve a conception out of this plan, but they also get a lot of strife, a lot of consequences that unravel. Now, here's the thing. Really quickly, quick aside, don't beat up on Sarah because um, if that's your possible thought process as soon as you read that, you know, that she brings this idea to him. Um, this is not the first time in this work-in-progress marriage, what I would call it. This is not the first time in the story that someone struggles with fear and doubt uh, and control. Back in chapter 12, Abram's willing to share Sarah with men in Egypt because he's afraid of getting beat up or killed. So there's a whole lot of sharing bed here going both ways. Um, so it's a very strange thing in, in chapter 12 that you can read about. But essentially, Abram, the text tells us that Sarah's apparently very beautiful. Abram knows that. They go into Egypt, and he's like, look, they're going to notice you. It's going to go badly for me. They're just going to kill me off to take you. So let's pretend like you're my sister. Um, 
And so she uh, probably reluctantly agrees to that. Of course, as fate would have it, she is taken into Pharaoh's house. God inflicts plagues on him. He catches on to the ruse and is like, take your bags and go. And in the process of all of this, they get really rich off of it. And the text tells us they even acquire servants. In comes Hagar. This is probably where they brought her into the story. And so she leaves with them and starts traveling with them. Now bear in mind in context here that when Abram and Sarah were first called out and given the promise of a child, Abram was 75. I won't ask for any hands in the room of who's 75. My guess is it wouldn't be very many in here. 75, he's given this problem promise of a child. And Sarah's 65. Now that's a bit late. I don't know everything about uh, reproduction. Um, I know enough to know that this is pretty late uh, to be thinking about having children. Uh, but now, by this time, when we get to 16, uh, when we get to Hagar, it's been 10 years. Abram's 85. 85 years old. I mean, the promise alone was astounding when it was first delivered. Now it's growing even more crazy and hard to wait for it. You know what I mean? I, I sadly wait 10 seconds while my screen is buffering, and I get uncomfortable and frustrated. 10 years? 10 years at 85? For a promise? They're struggling, yes, of course, at age 75 and 85. Also bear in mind, and this is important, because you, we may not know this, but it was the custom of the day back then that a wife could take her maidservant that she legally owned and hand her over to her husband to act as a kind of surrogate. This was a practice that happened. And so although this style of surrogating, I mean, we have surrogates in our day too, but although this style of surrogating seems maybe strange to you, maybe you know, a bit perverted, or you just think that this is wild, I don't know where your thoughts are on that, what you've been exposed to, although nowadays... Um, not that crazy. Uh, but this style of surrogating might seem crazy, but it was not strange in their context at all. It was not unreasonable that Abram and Sarah struggled and then looked for options, other options or solutions to their discontent. Uh, is it wrong? Was it wrong? Yes. Wrong. Wrong. Unreasonable that they were thinking this way, having this discussion? No, that it was not unreasonable in their context. And I say all that just because I think it's important to point out that there is no indication in the text that Abram and Sarah had stopped believing in God. This was a struggle, it was what I would call faith in action. They, they, they were, this was a revision of past experiences. Well, I, he's going to promise a child but did he get into the specifics of how? Like, you know, and so they start reworking kind of, well, I don't know, maybe there's some loopholes here, right? I mean, it's revising their theology and how it should work out, and so they intervene, right? Now, there's an awful lot in the rest of chapter 16 that's worth exploring. I, it, I love this chapter. In full, I love the rest of this chapter. I can't believe I'm not reading it and not preaching it. There's so much worth exploring. The oppression of this girl, Hagar, the way God sees that, seeks her out as she flees and, and does 
crazy things there, and it all plays out into the grand history of salvation. It's quite amazing um, the way that God sticks to his plans, even with Abram and Sarah, and heals broken people. I love it. But for today, I just want to focus on the shocking but sad turnaround, given that Abram and Sarah had already seen quite a bit with God and experienced quite a bit, and yet this, how does it unravel? You see, I, I just don't think that the beginning of doubt in people and deconstruction of like faith issues for people, I don't think that the genesis of that happens uh, immediately. I don't, I don't, I, or I, what makes me put it this way? That doesn't sound right. It, what I'm saying is, is I don't think it's immediate. You go jump right into disbelief and you don't jump right into disapproval of God. It's never, in my experience, a quick turn of the heart. More often, it's a slow drip of confusion between what you've heard or thought or believed about God and what is reality, what is in front of you. It's what you know you've read or learned about God, and then then there's what you're going and experiencing right in front of you. It's what you actually see. It's the dissonance that you feel. It's the dissonance that you see and you hear in people. That's the start of it. Um, The other night, I was upstairs at the office. This really bad storm blew in, and the sirens went off, which were really loud because they're right over there. And in my head, I assumed sirens mean tornado is touched down right around here, right? So I do the brilliant thing, which is run outside. (laughs) I want to see it. And I get outside, and I'm not joking. I, when I get outside, I look out, and you know, up top, it's beautiful view. Um, it, it's like barely drizzling. And to be honest with you, it was a beautiful sunset. Dissonance. What I'm seeing is not at all what I thought or what I expected. I thought there was supposed to be a tornado. You know, where are the cars and the trees flying through the air? What is this? This is, this is gorgeous. Let's, let's get a lawn chair. Dissonance. What you think should be true is not what you see, feel, and experience. Now, there's a lesson in the story here that I'm trying to get at that's deeper than just sexual ethics, although you can take that one home. Let's not pick up polygamy when things get bad. Um, but... Dissonance, it was not written into the sermon. Um, Dissonance is a part, and this is important for you to remember. And I know it's like probably axiomatic, and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, no, think it through. Like sometimes the simplest truths are the deepest ones. Dissonance is expected in the journey of a disciple. It's expected, like You're going to have to, it's part of the Christian journey. Enough dissonance will always bring a certain level of doubt and deconstruction. It always will. And the truth is, when we don't know or where to turn or how to react, it can lead us down these dark paths and really bad decisions like it did for them. And then therefore, like rightfully so, many of us get afraid for ourselves if we're struggling with it. Uh, we get afraid for our churches, we get afraid for our friends, our community. You know, Abraham and Sarah, if you know the whole story, Abraham and Sarah will eventually serve as models of radical, resolute faith. Amazing models of faith. 
uh, friend, they didn't get there overnight. You know, before they serve as a model of crazy, beautiful faith, I would say they serve as a warning to us that the truth is that doubt and deconstruction can lead to despair and drifting. I can't get in to all the, the signs, the warnings, the pitfalls, um, and the better ways of responding to struggles of doubt and dissonance, like when you're feeling like, man, what I see is just not what I see in the Word. Like what I'm experiencing is not what I know God says He'll do. That's for the rest of the series, to be honest. In some ways, this is just works as a primer. Like please stick around, come back. Um, so I might leave us a bit wanting this morning. Um, today, I just want to say that the truth is that doubt and deconstruction can lead to despair and drifting, but it's not the only truth. It's a partial truth. There is an undercurrent of hope here. And I'll read you something. This is by Professor um, A.J. Swoboda in his book, After Doubt. He writes, it's, it's been observed that some species of birds to provoke their chicks to flight, will pick up small rocks below and slowly fill the nest. Uh, eventually, the discomfort of the nest forces the young to fly. Even God's creation builds in obstacles to help the process of maturity. The same is true in faith. Sometimes the rocks in our nests are simply God's way of getting us to walk on water. You see what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that doubt is not the obvious sign that you are drifting from God. It might mean that you're drawing closer. What I want us to consider is that wrestling with doubt in God is often proof that we really believe in him. What I'm saying is, and I read this somewhere, just because you kick the tires on a car doesn't mean you hate it and you're not buying it. It might mean that you're really thinking hardly about the decision and you're going to go home with a kind of resoluteness behind the wheel. You know the name Israel Right? The people of God. Israel in Hebrew. You know what it means? One who wrestles with God. <laughs> it's baked into who we are. To be a child of God is to be one who wrestles with God. Oswald Chambers once wrote this, quote, Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking. Just before I asked my wife to marry me, I went to the woods by myself and fasted for two days. I sat tucked in a little tiny flat spot on the side of a mountain uh, with nothing but water, a sleeping bag, and a tent with one question. What am I going to eat when I get home? No. <laughs> no, one question, one question. The question was, do I really love this woman? Do I really... Do I really want to make this kind of commitment to her? That was the question. And you might, you might think right before you asked, like, wasn't it kind of obvious by then that you loved her and that you really wanted to make this commitment? What, isn't it, wasn't it obvious, Matt? Well, what I would say to you is this. This is all I would say to you. It was when I went back to my car and went home. Because the point I'm making is, is that the harder, the hardest questions sometimes, putting them on the table in the, in the situation with me and my wife, you know, 
those kinds of questions brought me deeper into awareness and deeper into love, not further away from it. Some questions are difficult and hard and scary, but if you don't ask them, where are you? You're quite possibly in a very shallow place, not a resolute one. So I don't know where you find yourself, like in this cultural time, I, you know, spiritually speaking. I, I don't know if you find yourself right now in a place of doubt, um, or you just maybe you're living life with someone who's struggling with it. I don't know, but here's what I would say, and here's what I want you to make sure you keep your mind and imagination and heart open to is this. If you are going, or you will probably at some point go through it, I would say this. Just make sure that you wrestle with God with an open heart, not a closed one. An open heart, not a closed one. And for today, I just want to mainly press in three warnings, you know, like just really three quick warnings about what kind of what I think a, a closed heart means with God in, in a season of doubt and deconstruction is this. One, one, don't demonize or despair over doubt or deconstruction, uh, nor, nor don't demonize the ones who do it. N don't try to explain away the dissonance in your life or other people's lives. We had another mass shooting this week, guys. Like, what is wrong with us? And what is God up to? There's dissonance. I feel it. And, and we would be better off being honest that this is difficult to reconcile. So don't, don't demonize nor despair over it, but also this, too. I would say this, don't distract yourself from your feelings. I think sometimes we feel things on a guttural level and we don't, we're scared to bring them out even to ourselves, and name them because we don't know what that says about us and we just don't want to face it. And it's unhealthy. So don't distract yourself from your feelings in the scary process. I would say name. You need to learn how to name your confusions and name your frustrations with God. Be specific to them. This is why you have a whole book of poetry in the Bible pretty much doing that. Thirdly, I would say this, don't distract yourself from Jesus. Reflect long enough, uh, you know, daily, weekly, spend time, journal, pray, sit down, be still. Reflect long enough to qualify where your actual doubt is. Is it actually Jesus that you're starting to doubt? Or are you just doubting certain ways of following Jesus or certain ways of thinking or imagining Jesus that you've learned a long time ago that, quite frankly, you just need to confront? They just need to be confronted because we've picked up really good things along our journeys of spiritual uh, maturation, but we've also picked things that probably need to go. And, and so I would say, like, do an actual study of Jesus. Is it Jesus now, I don't, I don't have the time to explore it fully this morning. I'm going to explore it, I think, next week. But I think the crisis many feel isn't so much a pulling away from Jesus as it is just a transition of going, wait, I don't, I don't, what this, what I see here is not what I see in the church. I don't think I like it very much. And we're scared to start admitting it. And we're scared to have a conversation about it. I want you to remember that Jesus himself 
didn't doubt, but he absolutely deconstructed. And you could say, well, what do you, well, I'll be careful, Matt. What is, what is the Sermon on the Mount except deconstruction? When Jesus says, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And I don't think Jesus is trying to instill doubt into his listeners when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount at all. I don't think he's putting doubt in, but I do think he's inviting them into a new and deeper understanding of God and true righteousness. He's inviting them to transition out of this kind of shallow, this shallow culture of, of, of thinking of following God just through a set of rules. And he's like, no, like you need to reimagine what true righteousness is. It's deconstruction. It's dismantling it and, and putting it back together. And if we don't learn to sense this invitation and transition in ourselves and in our community, I think two things can happen to us. One, we will live with a kind of discipleship that's more about shallow platitudes and not a hard-fought, gritty kind of faith that I think God wants for us. It's realized, and I've seen this as I age, every Christian with real maturity has a kind of limp in their step that runs deep. Um, the Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor, uh, survivor uh, Elie Wiesel, described his faith with one adjective, wounded. Quote, he said, my tradition teaches that no heart is as whole as a broken heart, and I would say that no faith is as solid as a wounded faith. Secondarily, I would say this, if we don't pay attention to the transition that many of us are in, and I would say the transition and the invitation that the entire wider evangelicalism is receiving right now, if we're not paying attention and open to God and listening, if we have a closed-off heart, those sorts of things, if we have a closed and defensive posture, we will possibly with good intentions, run off children of God that are just in a very difficult season of transition, spiritually speaking. We will run them off because we don't give safe space for hard questions. I remind you that Jude 1, 20 and 22 says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. It's at the end of your Bible. So if any of this resonates with you, I hope you'll keep coming back as we explore this more fully for a month. In the space between, I would just say, do this. If, if you like homework, and I like homework, I think it helps. Take time to inventory, like inventory moments of tangible love and the presence of God. You know, so much of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, could be summarized by this. Don't forget. You know, that's why there's so many altars in the Old Testament, because we forget. And when we forget, we do weird things. We need to remember. We need to remember. That's why God gave his people a calendar with festivals so that they would remember. You know, everything goes badly when the people of God forget. And so I would just say take inventory of these moments. Take time to celebrate them. And Oh, yeah, man, God has been real to me. He has been real to me. I was talking to Pastor Eric this week. And as we, <laughs> as we get older, you know, it's not that we don't still struggle, but it's like doubt is less and less to a certain extent for us. And we were talking about why, and it wasn't because we were super spiritual. It was because you just start racking up data. It's just like you just rack up data, and you're just like, no, I mean, you just can't. I can't. God showed up there. It's just real. It's evident. 
Don't stop reading either. Do a deep dive on the stories of doubt. It will help you humanize the journey. Do a deep dive on Jesus. I mean, just read through stories in the Gospels of Jesus and then just ask yourself, is there anything about Jesus that you're, you're seeing that is not worth sticking out for? There might be things in the church that you're like, I can abandon that. Well, amen. Jesus would agree with you. He would agree with that statement. But is there anything actually in Jesus that is not worth you sticking it out for? I can't find anything. And that yourself might be some way for you to qualify what you're actually doubting or deconstructing. And lastly, I would just say pray for the Spirit. You know, go to the Father and say, Father, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I'm, I'm struggling with doubt. I, I don't need a Ferrari. I, I, I need you to love me in a, in a supernatural way right now. Would you do it? You might be surprised what happens. And of course, when it comes to remembering, we as the New Testament people, as we as, as the New Covenant people, we have the Lord's table. We have communion. This is what we do when we break the bread, when we take the cup. The thing that Jesus gave us, you know, on his, not, his last night before he was taken. When we take that bread and we break it and we remember that this, that this, this represents God's body, like his son's body broken for us. And, it, and we take the cup and, and, and we think about the blood that's been shed on our behalf. This is what we do. We remember. And it's not always feeling based, right? It's just remembering the history of salvation that's been worked out for our good so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so if, if, if you're a believer, even if you've got some doubts, you're invited to come forward in a minute to this station or this station, taking the piece of the bread, dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. If that's not your confession, you just know that, you're resolute in that, I don't believe in Jesus, this space isn't for you, I'm just glad you're here, and I hope that this is a church that is a safe enough space for you to continue to wrestle with your skepticism. I hope we love you well in it. Let us pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. Thank you for getting us through this space with our children. Thank you for allowing us a space to open up your word and think about what it means to, to wrestle with our own dissonance, that sometimes our realities don't match up what we see in the Bible. It doesn't always match up with what we what we know you've promised. And as humans with limitations, we have struggles with that. God, give us wisdom. We need it. Give us a heart that's open. Give us, give us a mouth that speaks truth to you and, and, and to each other. And that we're patient and we hold on in spite of the difficulties. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for making this possible. We praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.